0: All right, so I want to welcome Jason King to the podcast. He's uh, very graciously made some time and more than once uh, been willing to set aside time. Um, so now we're finally getting to meet. Uh, it's, it's great to have you here, Jason. Um, thanks again. And could you just start by telling us a little bit about how you came across Philip Pullman, how you got interested in his work, how it connects with your work at um, St. Vincent College?
1: Good. Yeah. Um, I ran, I was in graduate school and the time during graduate school, this is when the Harry Potter stuff was sort of hitting. And so I was desperately looking for something fun to read (laughs) and it was hitting the Harry Potter stuff as they came along. Um, but as I read this, I also ran into a review that said, Oh, if you like Harry Potter, you should also try these other series. And I looked it up and one was this Philip Holman's golden compass. And they, the review said it's sort of like a Paradise Lost inverted, and I was like, "Oh, I just got to do that." I my degrees in theology. I'm like, "This is going to be a, a total sort of blast," and uh, and so I started of read I read it a little bit, and then I gave it to uh, friends of mine. Uh, I gave it to who, the woman who's now my wife. Um, I tried to give it to Donna Friedas, who who and I worked together, and she's like, "I've already read that book," <laughs> and so then we started spending a lot of time just talking about it. Partly, it was, it was to get through graduate school, a sort of fellowship, but then as we talked, it just became so much interesting. There's just so many layers of things that were sort of going on, and I just ended up in a really interesting place, sort of thinking about sort of Pullman and his sort of anti-Narnia, anti-Christianity that I sort of are, I want to argue that is really pretty thoroughly sort of Christian. So <laughs> it's this sort of funny... Uh, place that we sort of arrived at. So Donna and I worked and we uh, wrote a book together. That's really where it sort of came out of. Um, and then, but that sort of interest in culture and science fiction has continued to sort of influence my work as important to me as a person. And I was looking as, I, as a way in which I connected to students. And eventually, all of my a lot of my students, I built up all these relationships with students that liked science fiction, fantasy, superheroes. Um, and so Most recently, it started to connect up because I teach this course at St. Vincent's called uh, Aliens, Monsters, Heroes, and Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) And So I do a bunch of science fiction, fantasy, superhero kinds of things. And Phil Pullman will sometimes sort of make an appearance in that course as I mix up the the sort of text in that as well. So it started out really purely of just personal interest, enjoying it, Mm -hmm. moved into a friendship of things that I like to share. And then my intellectual life sort of kicked in and that's sort of where it went, yeah.
0: Excellent. So you've actually taught this uh, series, or do you teach just one of the books? Um, I,
1: yeah, I just taught the first one. The series is so big yeah. and, uh, that I am hoping that they like get enamored with the book, the first book, and that sort of take them out for sort of the rest of them. So, right on.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I've read your book, uh, "Killing the Imposter God," yeah. Philip Pullman's spiritual imagination, right, is the subtitle, and so you co-wrote that. I liked it. I thought it was really interesting. Um, of things that I've read about Pullman, I think it it takes a really interesting angle on a discussion that can get kind of well-worn a bit, like, like you mentioned the the, the Narnia comparisons. Um, I think you guys did a really interesting job of of treating his approach to theology and storytelling um, and how that's kind of crystallized in, in dust. Um, to back up a little bit, I'm kind of interested in how the writing of that book worked because he co-wrote it, as you said, with um, Donna Fritas, and, and she's, a, I guess, a uh, collaborator with you on a few other books too, right?
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: What's your process like when you when you write together with, with her?
1: That's a good question. Yeah, she, her and I were in graduate school together, coming from sort of different places, and um, sort of struck up a kind of friendship uh, over a bunch of different sort of topics. Uh, we originally collaborated beforehand. She was dating a person. I was dating a uh, uh, Kelly is my wife now. Uh, and we were talking about theology. We ended up, we realized there was not a theology of dating. So we wrote a paper on dating. It got picked up, we wrote a book on it. And then um, then Donna went on and wrote a book on um, Bridget Jones and spirituality. And then she's like, I got an idea, we should do the Pullman book. And so the Pullman book we came back to sort of did together. And so periodically we sort of come back and forth. We have our sort of own trajectories, but it's really sort of built in a, in a kind of friendship. The, the writing process is pretty um, I actually really enjoy it. It's a little bit easier. I don't know how you would do it without technology and the internet. Cause we could send email files back and forth pretty easily. But what you do is what we did is like, you would start to draft, we'd sort of divide up, we'd, we'd sit and talk and sort of map out like the overarching sort of structure of the book and the main arguments, um, the general arguments, because as we get into details, a lot of times they get refined and, all right, we'll say I'll do this chapter, you'll start this chapter, but you'd write a chapter and you would realize like, this is, I, I don't have to say everything here and I can sort of get my little, get about like three fourths of the way done and then I like send it off to her and she's like, oh, let's change this, let's do that, let's move this piece over here and then she'd do a stab at it, and then she'd usually send it back to me and then I'd sort of, oh, that's sort of good and brilliant and sort of smooth it over there as well. Um, we're, it helps to be good friends because you can be like, say like, oh, that's not working. And that's like, okay, that's good. So we have a good working relationship going back and forth in that. So each of the chapters is like, I don't know, like five eighths, one of ours. And then the rest of it is like through process of revision, sort of back and forth and that sort of sort of iterations on it. And we developed a pretty good dial um, on that. Again, it, it just helps if you love the subject and you just want to really sort of talk about it. But um, yeah. yeah, so I guess that's it. And then, yeah, it's, we had a big argument for actually with the title of the poem book. We sort of worked at it for a long time and, it was this sort of moment when we were like, sort of trying to like, uh, you know, he's saying all of these things that sort of seem like anti-Christian, but it's all the things, a lot of things that we sort of agree with and we're Christians, what do we do with this? How do we, do we pitch it as a fight? And then I just remember Donna calling me up one day. She's like, I got it. He's like an anonymous Christian. (laughs) And so we, so that sort of helped us sort of um, like halfway through sort of refocus the book and sort of get our main arguments sort of together. So, so yeah, it's, it's, Yeah, so journeying out, sort of know where you're going, but not quite, you don't have to like have everything mapped out at the beginning.
0: Yeah, well, it strikes me that that's similar in some ways to how Pullman talks about his work as a writer. You know, he doesn't necessarily have the entire thing figured out when he sits down to write, but he does, you know, sort of do as much as he can. He's sort of very disciplined about writing something, even if he doesn't know quite where it's going. Um, And then sort of trusting in the story itself, kind of emerging as, as he goes through this this work. Um, and he talks in a little bit of a similar way about having a kind of voice, you know, that he's working along with. He's collaborating with this this narrator, right? In his, his writing, he tends to use this kind of old-fashioned, omniscient narrator who knows things that are going on inside of characters, but also things that are going on generally. Uh, is sort of judgmental at times, but at times coy, you know. So it's a very interesting... It's not, it's not easy to uh, say exactly where the narrator ends and Pullman begins or vice versa, if you see what I mean? Um, and so I'm curious, I think the first question I'd like to ask, like as far as specifics go, um, I think in, in broad strokes, I sort of agree with your argument, but I'm curious what you think about the question of what Pullman's own uh, stance towards religion, um, how that is conveyed through the story that he's telling, what that, his, that his sort of narrator, demonic persona is telling. Um, yeah. Where is the point of, of, of connection between, you know, Pullman as a, as a person in the world, his religious stance, and that of the, uh, the narrator, the story seemingly sort of conjuring up something about religion. Uh, yeah, yeah, if that makes sense, how, how do those yeah. connect? Where do they diverge? What, what do you think about that issue?
1: Yeah, that's a good one. Because um, I I started in on the, the the Golden Compass without really knowing much about Pullman at all, other than the sort of like you know the little blurb sort of uh, begin with, and taken pretty um, quickly into his world uh, and the the like quasi steampunk, the the the, the demons, the whole the whole bunch of different things in there. I was just totally sort of taken with, and it wasn't like till halfway through that i was starting to pick up like ah oh, there the authority the church has this kind of peculiar role in it and so that's one i that was one of those moments i was like this is sort of interesting and that i think part of that is that ongoing critique of how institutions wrapped in a kind of religious mythology can then use that as a way to really marginalize and harm people. And I, so that was the, that I, I saw him like playing out that sort of critique of not just institutions cause they, they, you know, they've got their, their own sort of limitations, but when it's wrapped up in this kind of religious uh, aspect, how it sort of shields them from being revised or critiqued or sort of checking, checking them in their sort of power. Um, and that's what the, one of the themes that I, uh, one I resonated with, I, but also like that started to get me his sense of understanding of sort of the church. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and then a counterpose to that, the kind of compassion and mercy that sort of his main characters sort of have uh, on the other side. So uh, I was like really, so that it wasn't, I was like sort of, I guess two thirds uh, through the subtle knife and into the amber spyglass when I was starting to dig back into sort of his own personal life. Um, And that was sort of my sense. I got like his main, thrust What about religion was the way in which those institution religious institutions can harm people with those sort of that religious sort of background? Um, so then I don't know quite how it those two things put together like his personal view I really felt like especially that first story like he was just driving at this kind of um, Issue uh, with Lyra and um, playing in this fantasy world that i thought was sort of really sort of gripping and i felt like as he was putting those pieces together um some of those beliefs that he had um started to shape that sort of uh, fantasy sort of narrative i i really i, I see him in, in some ways like parallel to like the way that tolkien i mm-hmm. describes this sort of fantasy world he, he token calls it i think like co-creation like there's a kind of a world behind here that he's got all of these values and principles and those aren't Directly mediated into the story, but they inform the way the story is sort of shaped and told. And I that that was sort of the way I started to think about Pullman, is that he clearly has all of these beliefs and stuff that shape his own personal horizon, but it's that that's the context within which he's creating this world. So I didn't quite catch his lot of I didn't I never felt like he was like trying to push a kind of agenda from his beliefs into the books. I felt like he's got this view about good and bad, right and wrong. It's in the background. And then as he's telling the story, that's clearly sort of informing the kind of fantasy that sort of comes about. So it, I, I do see a kind of a distance at that um, yeah. a little bit. But so I guess I seem a little bit, I guess I seem more, much more like Tolkien than I seem like Lewis that tends to have a little bit more allegory in it. So.
0: That's very interesting. I think I would agree with that. And, and as much as he's compared to Lewis because he sort of invites that, right? By, by positioning himself as this <laughs> strong atheist apologist yeah. in, in effect right or rather the the attacker of apologists for christianity uh, yeah. he's actually a lot more like tolkien in some ways as a as a storyteller um, yeah. i think so uh, he actually has some really interesting um biographical parallels with tolkien too um in terms of like his uh youth in in africa right uh they they have that in common he he loses his father early um, so some weird. There's some weird, and of course the Oxford thing, which you know, yeah, yeah. Is, <laughs> um, is very, very strong Like
1: fantasy surrounding Oxford. I feel like sometimes mm-hmm. like, seems to give birth to so much. Yeah.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. But um, but I think in terms of the uh, the personal religious attitudes, uh, he does. I think I I would agree that they are they are much less noticeable in the first book. They become more forcefully pushed as you go through. Um, And then you can sort of read back into earlier parts of the story and see them a lot more clearly, um, in in more sort of metaphorical ways, right, and less overt ways. But I, yeah, I think I agree that he he overstates things uh, in his, you know, in his actual correspondence and stuff um, in the real world. I think for me, it's, it's a way of him getting people to read his books, probably, you know, to, to generate controversy, to, to get his name allied with these other names, which people are um, very passionate about. And so they're going to you know, see what he's saying about that in his stories. Um, but I, I think the stories are quite uh, Christian, actually, in, in a weird way. And um, I think you, you guys lay out that argument pretty well. So could you just kind of walk through a little bit of the ways in which you see a kind of Christianity Implicit in in the stories themselves
1: Yeah, the, um, I I yeah uh, I mean, I always joke when I sort of taught this book. I'm like, this is the, the the You know atheist that doesn't believe in God, but the only thing that can save us is self-sacrificing love with the help of grace so <laughs> and I feel Like so I always sort of find this sort of uh, interesting I, I think he's got um, I think like he's, he's got this idea of of the, the idea of God that he's critiquing is that sort of God that's sort of separate that almost the deistic kind of God separate from us. And yet he has this idea of dust that's sort of intimately connected to us. That's responds to us is sort of responsible for our consciousness. And so it's a, it's a, almost like a pantheistic sort of notion of God. I sort of, that that's this part of our argument that there's this connect understanding of God that's intimately involved with us. And so I think that's the first piece of it. And it's because now tokens on my mind, like that tokens, understanding of his gods has that same kind of this worldly kind of connection to this as, as well but i think the dust for him has that kind of sort of capacity to it that seems to not be so independent from us but also is tends to move us to things that are good and loving and sort of helpful in those sort of pieces um and then i so that's that's One piece. The second piece is that I think what you find in response to all of the the authority and and uh, the church that runs through all of the worlds and all of those sort of books is uh, these moments of sacrificial love that that um, saves people Um, and it, it 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 it. it goes from like Lyra at the end and her her separation from Pan. It it goes from Lee Scoresby sort of in the first one, like all of these characters willing to give up their, their status and their um, power to sort of help make things sort of better. Mm -hmm. I, I think the third piece of that too, is that he finds it's the voices on the fringes are the ones that seem to sort of speak up. So it's the young girl, it's the disinherited bear, it's the witches, it's the gypsies, it's the um, all of these sort of fringe characters from the margins. And at least... At- me and like from Christianity right like this is the this is Jesus who comes into his hometown and nobody oh this is the carpenter's son this is the guy from Nazareth this is nobody sort of important or significant he recruits not the powerful he recruits the the fishermen and he's and, and the women and there's, so there's a variety of ways in which I think that sort of ministry comes from the side and it's from the those margins that you start to see people that that aren't concerned with their climbing up the ladder but are concerned with love and care and making things sort of better and then this can then brings you sort of more in line with dust or God. And that the dust then also is that grace that starts to help you out, <laughs> um, gives you abilities. And the, the clearest one, right, is the golden compass at the beginning. Lyra has this ability to read the golden compass that transcends any sort of sort of knowledge that sort of helps her out. So I see him having this sort of vision that the, basically the principle of operation for the whole world is, Kind of sacrificial love <laughs> and it comes mainly from the people that are not in power oppressing but from the margins that are sort of seeking to think things are sort of better and then you have this sort of force that connects us all together which is a kind of a, a, a pantheistic sort of notion of god so
0: yeah I, totally and and so i i'm interested then in um sort of pre- putting yourself or placing yourself in that kind of mental framework mm-hmm. how how could we imagine his institution going so astray um, why is it that the church then is this oppressive uh, very patriarchal institution uh, which doesn't seem to reflect all of those elements of the gospel story uh, the kind of lived experience of people who have uh, you know felt grace or something like that this or or committed an act of self sacrifice or anything like that where does that diverge so so much from from the institution, uh, in his world, potentially in our world, uh, that he seems to be really critiquing that that component, that dogmatic, oppressive aspect of religion. Good.
1: Uh, that's um, that's a great question. I, I I'm going to go at this sort of back in. There was a comment I and I can't. I'm trying to remember that the context within Pullman made it, but they were they asked him like, "What are the best books of all time?" or something, and he's like, "I, I don't want to play that game. I would rather get a bunch of." People saying like uh, where where's some books you should read like not like he, he's very averse to like ranking things and setting up kind of hierarchies, and he really just is like public libraries like let's read a whole bunch of books let's have a great read where everybody's sort of reading everything and I feel like that for I like that comment because I feel like for him this is where the problem starts to come in, and so I think when you get to the golden compass or in the, the subtle knife and amber spyglass. Mm-hmm. For him, right, it is the idea of the the authority and then the Metatron who sort of carries them out and that to try to secure their position that they um, work to sort of implement all of this stuff sort of topped out. And so they're able to bring certain people on board that are willing to, for, for their own power and their own position, willing to sort of put themselves subordinate to those above them, but then it's because they'll get power f- for over people sort of below them. And that starts to build out from really the top in his sort of, sort of spiritual world down through sort of the church and then down through all of the people that you start to run into in the, in the stories. And so everybody's willing to sort of, those on the church are, or in, in Pullman's world are willing to play this game of getting positions of status and importance and value by, by, Subordinating themselves to someone higher, (laughs) so they can get—I feel like it's like almost like an Amway sort of scheme or something like that, or a a pyramid scheme. That's really not not an Amway, but yeah, like a Ponzi scheme. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. and uh, and that they're, but then they they become really then highly invested in preserving that order and that structure, and then really penalize people that step out of it because that's a kind of a threat. So you're looking to keep on, especially the further down you go, to keep pressure on people to conform. And I I feel like that's um, uh, that's where he sees it I think in the world. And I the two when I start to step out of that that world, those are the things that I see really important. One is um, um, C.S. Lewis had a wonderful essay called The Inner Circle. I don't know, and it was just it's a nonfiction essay, and it's mm-hmm. called. Uh, he talks about like how there's a dynamic in human beings where we're always trying to get into the inner circle, and you never know if you're in the inner circle. But there's always this sort of secret desire. Oh, if you know this or know that or know this kind of thing, then you're in the inner circle and his point was basically like there's always another inner circle and you're all, and the whole point of these circles is to exclude other people. And so there's that sort of sense of trying to get higher and belonging and sort of more important. And, and Lewis contrasted this with Christianity saying, this is not what this is about. You're you've, you've lost something. And he, Lewis even says like you can use Christianity in ways that are really toxic to, by making yourself, by making Christianity part of an inner circle and right. a part of his, I think Lewis's mere Christianity was a kind of rejection of that notion of Christianity to get you, to advance you along. And it's just sort of, sort of be mere Christianity. So I think like when I see in the, I see Pullman's critique is really, is he's really fascinating in the world that he's got, but even outside is a pretty powerful critique about how religion can go wrong. Um, And I do, I, I see this, I, I, I see this in a bunch of places. I'm in Southwest Pennsylvania. So we're recovering from the, Attorney General's report on the sex abuse crisis. So um, you you see like, um, our, our current bishop, I think is very good, but you see like in past iterations where people sort of tried to preserve their dignity in, instead of like owning up to sort of what's going on. But I, it's not just the church. I see it, you know, you see it in like little city governments or, or you know, amongst faculty members of colleges <laughs> where you get, you know, people trying to like, instead of like doing what's right, like trying to hold on to power and, trying to secure their sort of position. So I think there's a kind of a, a real danger. I think it's a part of sort of a common human dynamic, but then it also gets picked up when you're, um, it gets exacerbated in hierarchical schemes and then bigger hierarchical schemes make it worse. And then if you add the religious trappings on it, it can that can be used as a way to even further sort of secure this because it's not just you disagree, then you become a dissident, and then you become a sort of heretic and that sort of moves you out of this sort of realm that's there. So I, I think that they're, um, so I, I think it's a real powerful sort of critique, and I, I mean, this is why I think Pullman is sort of like a closet Christian too, because this is partly Jesus's critique, right? Like these people that are interested in paying um, taxes on you know mill uh, uh, dill and mint, but not neglecting justice and mercy, and he's you know we're, people that worry about their, the length of their tassels as opposed to sort of kindness and sort of forgiveness. And I, so I think there is a da- there's a that real danger there that that um, that that human dynamic can be built up in hierarchies and then with a the religious overlay it becomes really difficult to sort of, uh, change. So I, yeah, I, no, I think that's, I think that's it. Or like, that's my sort of thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, It's, it's a really, I think as you put it, a, a really prevalent issue these days, right, is sort of questioning authority, questioning hierarchical structures because of those corruptions, which are sort of uh, built into human nature and thus into any you know, uh, formation that we, we try to put ourselves in. Um, it's, I think it goes back to his concern with the fall as kind of the fundamental story that he's yeah. interested in, right? Because there's a lot of different ways to read that story, but one way to read it is as Adam and Eve wanting to go above their their allotted station, right, yeah. and hold on to or, or gain even some power that they're not supposed to really have and, and want to kind of see the world as God sees it or something like that, rather than as he has intended and created them to experience the world, right? And and I think Pullman has a really interesting read of that story, which is not that really, yeah. but um, but maybe that's sort of a component of what he sees the church doing instead, right? Uh, as this this kind of awful corruption um, and machine sort of thing. Uh, yeah,
1: that's a- So yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, that was just, that's a good way to describe it. Yeah, it's like a the machine that starts to eat you up and it's sort of inevitably grinding you out and it's, it's really hard to sort of stop and it's, it's got all the parts that are unflexible and sort of move. Yeah, that was just a good word for it, I thought. so. Yeah, well,
0: yeah so I, I, I'm interested, I guess, in, uh, you mentioned um, pantheism or I think you even talked about panentheism as a kind of development of that idea. Um, that's a big component uh, of of your read of Pullman's Christianity, so to speak. There's also yeah. this this um, thread of liberation theology, which yeah. picks up on some of those elements you were talking about. Um, could you could you expand a bit on those, but also maybe in the light of this this fundamental story about human nature, um, how those things can kind of help us uh, balance better the, those those desires for power with more sort of humanistic or, or compassionate uh, impulses that are in us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, a, uh, yeah, it's like, I got to go at this sort of backwards. Cause I was thinking like there is this the human nature, right? It, it, it has, it's a, it's got a desire to love. Um, that's I think pretty sort of deep into that. And then that gets skewed. I think, sometimes right for this sense of status or belonging or importance or meaning because that there's a sense of like you want to be valued you want to be loved you want to have purpose and it's not just to be loved we also want to love others so there's a it seems to be that's a pretty fundamental sort of human dynamic and we we part of that so we want to belong to communities <laughs> and so there there is this um maybe not attention, but there is a an impulse in us to belong to communities and look to people that are uh, that can be leaders. Um and I just I, I just remember at very end of um Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone when, you know, Harry had defeated Voldemort or that time around and they were coming back in, but um Slytherin had won the House Cup and Dumbledore came in as like, oh, but we have a few extra points and waved a <laughs> one and like everything was fixed. And I just remember that point thinking like, Oh, that's a guy that you want in charge. Like that's the kind of leader that you that you want. And then you have these, like in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, you have those sort of moments of, you know, Aragon or Gandalf, like leaders that know how to lead, not by tyranny or force, but by bringing out the best and sort of people. Um, and so I feel like Pullman has, has, um, a little bit of that sort of too, because you've got Lyra who's sort of trusted and and Lee Scoresby and uh, Yorick, like all of those kind of, and Will Perry, like all of these kind of characters that people follow because they know that they're sort of up for sort of good. So that's a, sort of a long-winded way. When you get into like liberation theology, one of the things that liberation theology does is, um, it, it does a few things. One, it it starts with people's experiences of being pushed to the sides. <laughs> and it sort of helps us to ask that 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 question about why are we sort of pushed to the sides and what does this sort of do to us? And I think when you've got that nat- that human nature of wanting to belong, wanting to be part of community, wanting to contribute, wanting to love and sort of to be loved um, when you push to the sides, all those things are, um, hindered and, and are frustrated. And so there, so then why do you go to the, to those marginal voices because you see where things aren't working well, where human beings are suffering. And then you sort of ask the question, why? What's going on? And liberation theology's um, main move is like there are structures in place that actually hinder this fulfillment. And so how can we start to think, analyze the structures, change the structures such that we can, it's easier for us to reach those kinds of fulfillment. Um, they, they draw a little bit of that sort of dynamics, uh, the economic sort of analysis that that money helps you to do things. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I always tell, I teach a class called God, work and money. I'm like, the problem with money is that it's really, really important. <laughs> and you have to, you have to pay attention to it. And, um, but it's because it's so important that it can start to rival God. And I think that this is the, part of those structural analysis from liberation theology is that those, the, the people in power have, so much vested in keeping things the way that they are and so their ability to change that is sort of limited and and especially if they're not in solidarity with those on the fringes then they don't have that empathy that is the foundation of the desire to sort of change those things so part of liberation theology is look at those voices at the margins see those structures that are helping them out be in solidarity with them and take their perspective in order that they might flourish and I think the best of liberation theology is that you do this, not just to sort of help the poor, you do this because it actually helps you if you're in power and position, like the whole world's better when these structures are sort of uh, are, are improved. And so like the, you might be in power in this sort of system, but you're also subordinated to someone else in this sort of system as well. And so I, that's when, when we did that, when we started to break down think about Pullman as a, as a christian that seemed to be the sort of natural fit like you've got this church structure or this hierarchical church structure in Pullman's sort of fantasy world but it seems to be terrible for everybody that's in it right even the authority at the end right is trapped in his own like little like crystal sort of cage and metatrons you know it's taking over these kinds of things and then all that there's a sort of ranking of everybody that seems and if you're lower down you're sort of more oppressed and then it's these sort of people at the margins that sort of see what's going on and can actually sort of then mobilize because because they have friendships and relationships connected to them that can then sort of push back on it. So they can have, I know Paulman probably wouldn't use these words, but like legitimate authority, like le- mm-hmm. they can speak voices that are that and create communities in ways that are life giving as opposed to as kind of oppressive structures that are there. So I, I think that, that the marginal voices, that deep seated need to belong and to sort of fit in and that, Critique of institution or, or structures that are, hinder our humans sort of flourishing. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's. I think he's he's ambivalent about authority in a way because it, he does talk yeah. about you know people having a kind of natural authority that that is recognized um, by by audiences or, or by other characters. Um, and I think he, as an author, has this kind of weird paradox where he is completely in charge of the story, right? Yeah. But on the other hand as readers, we are completely in charge of how we interpret and sort of act upon whatever we learn from the story. So so I think he wants to have sort of both of those be in play, and, and yeah, it's very interesting how he has this very dramatic, you know, death of, of God scene, um, but it, it's, the way that it's portrayed is um, weirdly, you know, moving and weirdly anticlimactic. Um, it's it's a it's a form um which is mirrored by the the escape from death right as as the the dead ghosts come out they they dissipate in much the same way as as the yeah. old uh, angelic figure of the authority dissipate yeah. right um, and this 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 leads us into dust right so so what you have left is kind of this um dark matter this part this particle of possibilities um what is dust and how does it take the place of or rename God for Pullman.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, because the, the, um, I, 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 so when we were trying to think about that, right, Dust has this, um, sort of Every it, it makes up sort of part of everything. It's sort of the source of consciousness. It's the source of sort of evolution. It's the um, things that connect us to sort of one another. It also seems to have its own, um, Right, like trajectory about sort of what's good and, 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 and what's not good. Um, and so it has this kind of, um, I don't know uh, what you would call it. Like the, the, the structure of the universe, I think sort of written, written into that a current of sort of the, the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I so I see those sort of pieces in this, and this is you made a good point earlier. I wanted to sort of come back to because I mentioned it like as pantheism, and pantheism sort of conflates the world and God, and pan, panantheism wants to make a little bit of a distinction sort of between those things. And I think that's, I mean, I, that's what we argued in the book that that's probably closer a little bit to uh, Pullman that he wants to make it sort of a distinction that it's not just like people are dust and that's sort of what it is, but there is this sort of sense of identity, but it's intimately connected to this other kind of entity. Now I think part of one of the things that I I, I like about dust is that when usually we have the image of God, we do think of like the the, the the entity that's up there, that's just bigger and bigger and stronger and smarter than the rest of us as well. And, and that, you know, that has some value that anthropomorphizing has some value, right? But it's pretty limited when you get, when you grow up. And so one of the things that dust does is it helps you to sort of um, get rid of that image that seems to sometimes, um, Cloud what really sort of is God, and so, the like the Gospel of John and John's sort of epistles like speak about God. God is love, and I always sort of go to that line into that. Stage. It's like God loves you, but like this is a different kind of statement. God itself is love. Like you've ever experienced love, part. If you've ever experienced love, you've experienced God. That's really what sort of John's claiming and partial and complete. But like, if you love your dog, if you love chocolate, if you love your your your, your spouse or your friend, like that's, a, if it's a genuine experience of love, like that's a little glimpse of God. And, and that can help you get over the, you know, the old guy in the sky kind of image. Um, again, if that's helpful, that's fine. But just, you don't want to make sure, you don't want to make that image what God is itself. <laughs> and so, when you have, when you start to think about God as love is that those moments of connection sort of between people, um, that's how I start to think about sort of dust is this kind of this bond that sort of holds the universe together and moves it in sort of certain directions towards what's good. And so I, it it helps, I think to, um, sorry about that. (laughs) They're dumping a bunch of rocks next door. Um, but it helps us then to think not just God as like the biggest, baddest person around, you know, with lots of muscles or things, but really helps us to try to imagine uh, imagine what like yeah, love itself would be or goodness itself would be rather than just sort of a, another sort of person. So I try to think of dust like that, that kind of like connective tissue, but almost like a current of the universe or that sort of moves us in sort of certain kinds of ways. So um, yeah. that's, that's, that's my theory. On
0: it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Yes. It's it's curious to me how how it is um, personal in some sense. It attaches to individuals. It's interested in adults more than children. It's interested in things made by people. Uh, all this and that. Um, but it is also sort of beyond any one person. It seems like once you uh, you know take that uh, metaphor of the the ghosts kind of dispersing further, then it's like you are sort of part of everything. Um, whatever was part of you is now involved in all sorts of other processes and and things. So there's a a kind of classic, you know, theological problem there about like the nature of the soul and the the prime mover, like, are they of the same sort of thing? Are they distinct? Um, That kind of thing is is going on. There's another, you know, classic paradox of free will and, and determinism and and that, you know, there's a lot of, talk about destiny in in these books which seems to kind of you know in fate and, and that seems to sort of deal with that question in interesting ways um, it strikes me that Pullman doesn't seem interested in, in really answering these problems or, or questions he just wants to kind of explore them with this new uh, lens I guess um, and and I'm curious you know what you think his take on that um, how it's informed by or how it's different from more sort of classically theological a- answers to those kinds of questions. Um, what does his approach sort of teach us or, or, or highlight for us a- about some of those great, you know, big paradoxes or quibbles? Or, or, uh,
1: yeah, yeah it is it is interesting. He's very... Um, my My sense is... I'm a good academic, I always want to qualify things. <laughs> uh, um, my, my sense is that like he, he's pretty wary of like a a world beyond the physical. So like that soul piece like he wants to embed it in this world and make it sort of material and I think that's why that appeal of like dust and dark matter helps to, to him at least to think about that that. Uh, that world or the soul or what we might call the soul is something that's just sort of part of our sort of world. So I see him in that sense, like sort of closer to Aristotle than Plato with the Plato has the eternal forms that are reflected down in sort of the world, but much more sort of closer to sort of Aristotle um, that the forms are sort of part of our world that's sort of here. So I I see him that's, that's eternal soul is I think for him much more material and how it starts to, it is this, it might coalesce around a person, but then it also, um, um, might coalesce around a person, but then it also sort of dissipates at the end and returns down to sort of other people. So there's this sort of overarching sort of connection that you have sort of to everybody that's there. Um, so I, I I think he wants, to, like he, he realizes there's something more to, to life than just like the physical world, but he's trying to find a way to sort of embed it in the physical world. Um, so that's it. I, it is interesting about like the destiny and fate kinds of things. Like he definitely plays around with that a lot in the, in the, the trilogy because on the one hand, like Lyra seems to be gifted and faded and has this des- you know, prophecy surrounding her from the very sort of beginning and she lives up to it and fulfills it. But then she also like, and then she has like the rest of her life that she does other things. <laughs> so it is like, um, and it's hard to know if this is like a calling like in the idea of like her, like is she destined to this free will or is this something that's calling her up and sort of um, like the direction that dust is sort of moving her in. And because she's a good person, she starts to sort of go along and and cooperating with it. I don't don't know if he has a good sort of answer for that. And and that might go back to your earlier observation about his sense of authority, which is um, he, he doesn't want tyranny but he also has an authoritative kind of voice. And, and so he doesn't want people to have their freedom taken away in fate, but there's also kind of clear direction about what you should be doing and what you shouldn't sort of be doing. And I, I feel like that's the kind of a balance he's trying to sort of negotiate on that. Um, and I, I don't know if he's got a good kind of uh, resolution to that uh, either.
0: Yeah. I mean, I like what you said. It's like within the framework of the story, we have to get to a certain end point but then the characters themselves live on beyond that. And we get to yeah. sort of imagine what their stories might be. And it's pretty clear, you know, what their intentions for themselves are, are going to be to, to lead these lives, these full lives, helping yeah. others, right? Um, and it's it's interesting to me that he has chosen to go back and, and tell some of those stories now. And we, we get uh, like a, a prequel of sorts, um, and we get a, a little tiny glimpse of like a, a, an interlude towards a sequel. Also, um, we get like a, a little bit about Lee Scoresby's early life in one of his little books. And we get something about what Lyra does after she's back in her world in another little book. And now he's got, you know, that longer prequel about Lyra as a, as a baby in the Book of Dust. Uh,
1: are you reading those, those later sequels and prequels? They, they are totally on my list and I just haven't okay. gotten to them. <laughs> I just well, finished... Uh, uh what did I just I, I just read uh um there's a book called Exit West, which is about uh these Syrian immigrants, but they these portals open up that send you around the world, and so they all these people are immigrating around the world and what it does to sort of borders. I was just finishing the expanse series and then I I read NK Jemison's Broken Earth series, which is just pretty, I think is pretty amazing. Um so they're, they're like on my reading list. I just haven't gotten to them, gotten to them yet. Uh so um yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess I'm I'm sort of holding it out because the um is it Amazon? Who's doing the B, the B, the the new series on mm-hmm. on Home and the Tell is it Amazon? Yeah, so I was sort of waiting to sort of see when that sort of hits up and I was gonna watch it and then maybe right
0: on, Yeah, it's uh I think it's uh BBC and HBO that's um producing or whatever. So it's gonna be I mean if you watched any Game of Thrones, they were promoting it pretty heavily like right after the end credits of that show. So I mean, it could be kind of a new uh, uh, level of interest that'll that'll come up. But but as you mentioned, I mean, uh, a lot of your students have already read Pullman, right? Um, they come in to. Do you find that people get more interested in theology as a result of reading Pullman? Um, that's been my personal experience. Yeah. I don't know if that's something students would share with you. And um, what what are their? I mean, what are their takes on it when you do teach
1: it in class? How do people? It's approach? just like the I like his world is so imaginative that it just opens up all of these like possibilities of them sort of thinking like the idea of the daemon like is it a soul is it on the outside of your body is take animal form like and suddenly you start to think about the human person and the reflection in the world around you like the the subtle knife like the movement between worlds and the the different sort of reality and a in a multiverse or alternative realities like it just sort of opens up and then when he starts going like the different, like the world of the angels, but all the way down to, um, when I'm blanking on the name, the little, the, the, the little, the the spies. The yeah, yeah. And so you get all of these, and the witches and the gypsies and the, and the bears. So he's got all these like little mini worlds around him. So they start to like, it's like s- sparking a sense of imagination. And I always tell him like, this is perfect. Like the idea of religion, the root word, One theory of it, the theory I tell them, which is like it comes to the word ligament, and religion is about what holds things together, and so as you start digging in what holds these worlds together, they um, then that sparks them to think about religion and Christianity in sort of other kind of ways. Like half the time they don't really they. Like the anti-Christian or anti-Lewis stuff, they don't ever pick up on. They're like, "Oh yeah, authority's bad," and, and you know, you shouldn't be mean to people. And then that's I'm like, there's some other stuff going on. They're like, really? So they're much more interested in the positive sort of characters. So they, yeah, they. So they, so yeah, it is it definitely they like. It's just exciting for them, and so that sparks their imagination. And that opens up all sorts of conversations you can sort of have.
0: Awesome. I'm glad to hear it. I would really love to get to teach this stuff someday in in some form. So I'm glad to hear that you're out there doing it and that it's going well.
1: Um, yeah, I'll is, give you one part of encouragement for to to do that is that's the the one of the fallouts of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe is that more and more students are interested in these kinds of questions. And it used to I have other courses that used to be way more popular, and this one was like a little niche course that a few students taught, and now it's like. Tons of students that are looking into this courses because they're want to think about these things a little bit more so go, So go teach that course
0: <laughs> Awesome. Well, thanks again for, for your time and it's been really interesting getting to pick your brain about some of this stuff um, Again, I'd recommend the book killing the imposter God um, by Jason King Donna Freitas. free test free Yep, is there anything in particular you're working on right now with respect to this stuff or you're you are scholarly uh interests taking you down other paths these days
1: um the closest the, i'm working on a, a a book about mr rogers and his environmentalism <laughs> he had a whole like fan he had a whole week on environmentalism in 1990 and it it's It's this trash apocalypse where the neighborhood of make-believe is being overrun by trash and all the surrounding cities are overrun by trash. And, and he's got all of these kind of, uh, so he blends like fantasy and, um, real world kind of pieces. And so I've been playing around with that with a friend of mine, uh, her name's Sarah Lindy in the English department. So, um, that's been a lot of fun and it's definitely like preschool age. So it's a little bit of a different one, but yeah, that's a blast.
0: Awesome. I mean, it'll, it'll certainly prepare people well to think about, uh, Dust and questions of pantheism down the road someday right,
1: right. all right Great. all right, well, thanks so much care. for the invitation
0: yes, uh appreciate it.